Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Squires from Fidelity Investments, podcast lover and first-time podcast host. And today is a very exciting day indeed. Today is episode one of FinPoint, our latest podcast that explores a new thinking behind creating and delivering more value in today's wealth management industry. So we'll be exploring what we believe firms need to do right now to capitalize on today's opportunities with something called the new advice value stack and how firms and advisors can use it to help define and then act upon the needs of the end investor. In other words, we'll explore what we've found really matters now to new customers and what advisors and firms can do to help keep them happy. We have two guests today, including Sanjeev Merchandani, president of Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions, and Eric Omquist of Bain & Company, the innovator behind the value stack concept. So Eric, let's begin with you. First of all, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for hosting us here. It's great to be here. So before we begin, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about Bain. How many offices do you have? Maybe a little bit about your clients, um, how you serve them. Sure. Well, um, first of all, we have 54 offices. That changes. It seems to increase uh, almost every couple months. Uh, but we have 54 offices around the world. We're here in Boston, uh, which is where uh, Bain started. Uh, Bain serves um, large global enterprises uh, around the world, large companies that you know typically are uh, trying to grow. They're trying to improve their performance. Uh, and we, um, we're all about uh, performance improvement and getting results for our clients. And how long have you been with Bain? I've been with Bain uh, for 12 years, and I've been in consulting for 39 years. So let's talk about value. We're going to begin with what value really is. It probably means different things to, to different people. And then what inspired you to create the elements of value? I understand that you were on the brink of retirement, and then you had perhaps an aha moment? Well, if you ask my wife, she would say that I'm always on the brink of retirement, but never actually do it. Um, this has occurred rather late in my career, all this, this research and publishing on the elements of value. But it started really because I've spent my whole career talking to consumers and B2B decision makers about the decisions they make and about why they do what they do. And I spent a lot of time observing consumers and, and thinking about what motivates them, think, thinking about you know, how they make decisions. And it struck me, starting about 15 years ago, that in a lot of our research, we tend to start from scratch almost as if we haven't learned anything from the previous work that we've done. Perhaps because it was getting later in my career, I said to myself, well, I should know something at this point that I can actually write down. I, I should be able to summarize something about consumer behavior and the way people think and act. I began to realize that value and the value that one delivers as a company is really everything. Consumers, if they find your product or service valuable, will give you money, they will give you their time, they will give you their attention, maybe even share information with you. And loyalty, perhaps, and, too. And loyalty. Loyalty is really kind of the outcome of providing value over time. As I thought about value, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it, it was neither infinitely complex nor amorphous. And that if we really began to think about it, we could identify types of value that are quite common in economic behavior. So recognizing that this is a podcast and we don't have visuals, could you perhaps talk us through the elements of value and help our listeners really visualize it? I understand it's structured like a pyramid with four levels, perhaps? 
Right. We didn't start with the pyramid. We began to think about types of value. And one major distinction that we made early on is that there seemed to be uh, sort of functional elements of value and there are emotional elements of value. As you uh, think about the pyramid that we've constructed, it starts with functional at the bottom, and then there are emotional elements of value, there are life-changing elements of value, and then at the top there are social impact elements of value. This is based on what is commonly known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a rough way. It's not identical to the hierarchy of needs, but we use Maslow's hierarchy as really a model for the way we think about this. It's interesting, Maslow didn't invent the pyramids that came later. His thinking was all in the form of writing as opposed to visuals. And in fact, I've never been able to trace back who developed the first pyramid, but it has been useful. So as you think about functional elements, these are things like saving time, reducing effort, simplifying, reducing cost, reducing risk. Some of the emotional elements are things like uh, reduces anxiety. Anxiety is a very powerful emotion. And as a service provider or product provider, if you can reduce anxiety, that's very powerful. But there are other ones like fun and entertainment. That's a big part of our economy, catering to that element of value. Attractiveness, design aesthetics, as you move up one more level, there are sort of life-changing elements. This has to do with motivation. There's affiliation and belonging. At the top of the pyramid, we included Maslow's self-transcendence, which is really about making the world a better place and charitable giving and altruism. We've only found one company in the few hundred that we've looked at that clears our threshold on that, and it's Tom's Shoes, which is a company that gives away a pair of shoes for every pair that you buy. They give a pair of shoes to someone in need. And they were very clever in building that into their proposition very early on, uh, making it very clear that they offer that. And younger people have uh, found it to be quite compelling. You know, this work is just incredible. As I prepared for this, it really makes you think about companies and organizations that you engage with and how you process those engagements in your mind. So it's just simply fascinating. I would imagine uh, this vision um, required some research to do. So tell us a little bit about the research that went in uh, to create the elements of value. Well, this was a long journey. I started thinking about this about 15 years ago. But we actually got some good feedback on an early version of the Elements of Value in 2014. And based on that feedback, we invested in our first research, which was uh, in 2015, where we talked to about 10,000 consumers. That research we have updated, and we now have data on uh, roughly 200 companies uh, based on roughly 50,000 consumer interviews. And that we just completed this summer. So it's really an update of the original B2C work. And then in between, we, we uh, have applied this to the business-to-business world. Uh, and we invested in uh, 2017 in research on a couple industries, IT infrastructure and commercial insurance. Were there any naysayers? Along the journey, you said, Eric, you're just wasting your time. I think one of the benefits of this thinking is that 
many people realize this, and they, they realize that it's kind of obvious, but to date, no one has really organized it in this kind of simple way so that people can think about a relatively tough subject like value and begin to peel it apart and, and make some sense of it. So can you apply this to all industries? And you know, could you give us an example of a company who's delivering value at multiple levels? We tried to develop the elements of value so that they were industry agnostic. In other words, you might be able to experience this type of value from any provider. So if you take saves time, for example, if a bank is well run, it can save you time. If a airline is well run, it can save you time. So it really doesn't matter what industry you're in. You always have the opportunity to save consumers time. And to give you an example of a company that from the very beginning was a standout, and most people who in the, let's say, in the, the business of understanding customer satisfaction and loyalty will know this, but USAA is a standout. From the very beginning, uh, in the first research, they were delivering at our threshold on 13 elements of value, which was the most of any company we looked at back in 2015. Now, USAA, people will say, well, they have an advantage because there's a shared culture between their employees and their customers because a lot of them are connected to the military directly. But my interpretation, and I've talked a lot of people about this, is that USAA has a mission culture. They are on a mission to serve their customers, and it permeates their organization and their customer interactions. If you look at some of the things that they're doing well on, they do well on many functional ones like saving time, reducing effort, simplifies, and so forth. They are really good, particularly at telephone interaction with their customers. But they also deliver on, for example, reduces anxiety. When their customers are, let's say, overseas in military service, they're away from their families, it's a potentially highly loaded situation where... Uh, they will be they want to make sure that money is in the bank. They're very good at that. And they're also good at heirloom, which uh, has to do with value for future generations. You can actually pass your USAA membership onto your children, for example. So let me ask you one last question. In the September 2016 Harvard Business Review article on this topic, you quoted an executive who said, a lot of people working on product features and service improvements, but they don't have anyone really thinking about consumer value elements in a holistic manner. So my question is, when companies think about this, do they need to get everything right in the value stack? No, we have never seen a company get everything right. Companies can have a very good business by clearing our threshold on three or four or five elements of value. They just have to make sure that they're delivering more than their competitors, and it's also very specific to the type of industry that they're in. And I will also say that Maslow basically didn't say that you have to have all your physiological needs met before you can meet other, let's say, more aspirational needs. Uh, He did not say that. And in fact, he gave examples of rock climbers who, in pursuit of self-actualization, put themselves in very dangerous situations. So he he was much more nuanced in his thinking about this than most people think. 
Very, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much for your, your thoughts and perspectives. I mean, the advice industry is certainly at an inflection point where redefining value for the end investor is becoming increasingly important. So what a great time to bring in Sanjeev Merchandani, president of Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions, who saw an opportunity for other financial service businesses to adopt to this model. Sanjeev, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Tell us, if you would, about the process of translating the work that Eric just described, specific to the financial advice industry. How did the idea start, and you know, what were you looking for, and what were you looking to get out of this? Yeah, I'll tell you the story of how we discovered Eric's work here and decided to uh, embrace it and adapt it for our business and our clients. Uh, so just to give you a little background, in my role as president of Fidelity Clearing Custody Solutions, I'm responsible for our client relationships and our business with uh, approximately 3,800 clients, and they fall into multiple industry segments. We have registered investment advisors, banks, broker-dealers, and family offices. And across those different um, segments, we serve them with a broad-based investment and advice platform that uh, touches nearly $2.2 trillion in client assets. So it's a pretty big business. And every year in the early spring, we have a big meeting where we bring in executives from these clients and talk to them about the future of our business. And we bring in lots of outside speakers. Um, but I had the opportunity a couple of years ago in April of 2017 to prepare for a talk to them on where the business is going. So we were thinking about how do we create some thought leadership that's useful. And one of our clients actually brought to our attention Eric's article. Uh, and when I read it, I, it, it was like the scales dropping from my eyes. I realized that there was something of real importance here uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's just common sense. We're all consumers. We all know how we make buying decisions. And we all take these things into account when we factor in the value of the products and services that we purchase. I think another thing that has changed in the world we live today is the information advantage that sellers had over buyers has ebbed away thanks to the power of the internet and all the online information that's available out there. So value really ends up triumphing much more um, because people can do comparison shopping and uh, really uh, shop at different types of experiences much faster than they could in the past and with a lot more information available to them. Without even leaving their house. Without even leaving their house. A third thing is, um, you know, in business, you have the concept of leading indicators and lagging indicators. And if you're looking just at your P&L and your current financial performance, that may not tell you how you're actually doing with the customer. Uh, and this is a more predictive way, if you will, of judging how you're actually doing with your customer. And my final point is I've had the privilege uh, over the course of my 24-year career at Fidelity to spend a lot of time with our former chairman, Ned Johnson, who is a legend in our industry. And one thing I learned from every interaction with him is how intuitively he got this concept and was always pushing us to say, what have you done for the customer lately? How have you improved what you've done? Uh, and last but not least, the Fidelity corporate logo is a pyramid. So when I saw Eric's pyramid, I was like, this is a match made in heaven. It was meant to be. <laughs> yes, there you go. So why did you consider the elements of value as a way to model shifts in the industry? And how did you find it? Yeah, so we found it, as I mentioned, a client brought it to our attention, and we were preparing for this talk in uh, the spring of 2017. So we actually sat down with Eric and got a deep dive into these concepts. And uh, having heard from Eric, you can see how thoughtful he is. 
but the background around the industry is, um, you know, financial advice industry is doing extremely well. It's at a record level of profitability. It's growing. Clearly, the markets are strong, and there's tailwinds behind uh, all the advisors. But there's a sense that there's going to be much more competition in the future and pressure on price points coming. You've got the rise of robo-advisors and other elements like that, you know, new competitive models coming at the industry. So our clients were all grappling with this issue and thinking about how they could make their business as successful in the future as it's been in the present and in the past. So this was a great way to help our clients think about the task at hand, which is if you're going to stay ahead of high-tech competitors, low-priced competitors, you've got to keep adding value. So we try to organize Eric's thinking into a framework that is applicable to our industry and our clients. So that inspiration, as, as you articulated, really, you know, drove a lot of this. What does the new advice value stack look like that you described, and how did we adapt it? So essentially, as you said, it's an adaptation of Eric's model. Visualize a pyramid. Um, the bottom of the pyramid that maps to the functional elements of the uh, value stack is managing the money. Uh, that's what brings us into the relationship with the customer. That's what gets us invited to the dance, so to speak. And uh, that's what everyone expects from us. So what goes into that? When you think about what an advisor does, it's all about the investment selection. It's the asset allocation. Uh, it's the product side of things, whether it's insurance or mutual funds or managed accounts and so on and so forth. So that's the base stuff that a financial advisor does for a client. Uh, that's what we call managing the money. And as I said, it maps to the functional element. But then you rise one more level above that, and you connect with the investor at the level of their goals. So why are they doing this? What are they trying to accomplish? And what you uncover when you dig into what investors are really trying to accomplish is they really want to send their child to the best possible school that they can. They want to make sure that they have a retirement uh, that can uh, uh, retirement income that can live through their lifespan, which as you know, lifespans are getting longer and longer. So getting people focused on their goals, why they're investing, and how much progress they're making towards their goals is a very powerful way for advisors to engage their customers. Customers. But then you can rise above that to areas like peace of mind and even life fulfillment. Because if you think about it, what people want at the emotional level is freedom from a world of worry, time back to live their lives. And advisors can help them with all those things. You talk to people, the universal things that they want are they want a sense of purpose in their life. They want good health. They want their loved ones to be taken care of. Um, and they want great relationships. All of these things are enabled by money. So what the advice value stack does is allow the advisor to connect money with these ultimate goals and objectives to having a fulfillment life. So Eric, how do you feel about this adaptation? And have you seen other industries uh, take a similar approach as Sanjeev described? Yes. First of all, I'm, I'm thrilled. I was thrilled to uh, get the call from uh, Sanjeev to come over and, and talk about it. I was thrilled that he was already beginning to use it. I think it makes a lot of sense to try to put this in the language of your industry. The elements of value, as described in the article, are still there. They're just in somewhat different terms. And I, I completely agree with how Sanjeev has laid out the value stack because you know, I'm an investor, I have children, I have goals in life, and the goals and the, the things that you're trying to accomplish in life are at the top of that stack. You, you don't live for just uh, getting by on the functional value alone. It's nice when you can save time and reduce hassles and so forth, but it's really the more lofty goals that one is tr trying to achieve in your life. 
So, Sanjeev, has this resonated with your client base? And, you know, do you feel clients are going to leverage their approach differently given this? Yeah, it's more than resonated. It's actually taken off like wildfire. So you'd be surprised how clients are adapting this model to their business. They've really taken to it. Uh, I have meetings with clients where they come in with their own value stack sketched out and ask us what they think of it. So it, it's really, really, really taken off. Um, you know, the client that brought this to our attention is a firm called uh, Halbert Halgrove uh, out on the West Coast. And Russ Hill, who is the CEO of the firm, is a very good friend. Um, and... Um, you know, no one probably exemplifies adapting this to the business as Russ has. I'll give you just a couple of examples. One is um, Russ actually has engaged with an academic who has studied uh, how doctors uh, diagnose and discover what ailments their patients are uh, suffering from and uh, has taken a very well-researched medical model and adapted it to the business of discovering what financial services clients are looking for. And that helps them get in touch with the customer's deepest goals and aspirations and connect that with the money management problem uh, and create a powerful model. And now he's taking that to the next level because he's actually very involved with the Stanford Center for Longevity and has been doing a lot of work with them about what the coming 100-year lifespan might mean for financial services and for that whole third age of retirement where the word retirement doesn't even uh, necessarily apply anymore. I think Eric is an example <laughs> of that. Um, so, um, you know, uh, it's really, really taken off. So, Eric, that's, I mean, that's got to feel great. I mean, there's a specific industry, a specific example, and just such great success with this. It does. It's very gratifying. I'm thrilled that I took the time to invest in, in these ideas and also very grateful to Bain for supporting the research. So let's, uh, let's boil it down to some numbers. From a business perspective, maybe Eric, I could start with you. How is this approach beneficial for companies? Why should they do this? So we have looked at a number of business outcomes with the elements of value. You know, it started uh, many years ago, Bain developed something called the Net Promoter Score, which is a simple metric of w whether you would recommend a, a service provider or product provider to a friend or relative. Uh, and NPS has become uh, kind of the standard in, in the customer satisfaction world. It's used by thousands of companies. One of the limitations of NPS is unless you spend time scratching the surface underneath a score that a customer would give you, you're not sure why they're saying that they're a promoter or detractor, for example. So the elements of value, if you will, are uh, subcategories of that customer satisfaction. One of the things we did in the original research is to begin to look at the relationship between NPS growth and the elements of value. And what we found consistently throughout this three-year period where we've been researching it is that the more elements of value one delivers on, the better as you go from, let's say, clearing threshold on no elements of value, you grow from an NPS of three, whereas if you're delivering on four or more elements of value, your NPS is somewhere uh, north of uh, 60, for example. That is just an enormous difference in the world of net promoter score. We've also looked at growth and the same uh, relationship holds. The more elements of value you're delivering on, the higher your growth rates. In the recent research, we also looked at what happens if you're increasing your elements of value over time, uh, and indeed your NPS uh, increases. We've also looked at share gain. 
So if you're delivering on uh, multiple elements of value, you're more likely to be in a situation where you're gaining share of your competitors. And it also increases your pricing power. And all of those um, relationships are um, ones that we found in quantitative research. So it's quite, quite a solid set of conclusions. So Sanjeev, from the seat that you sit in for the clients that, that you work with, is this a nice to have or, or a have to have, do you think? I think it's a have to have if you want a sustainable and competitive business in the future. If you're thinking long term, you have to think about how you're going to create value for your customer. But with that said, I, I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think you go out and willy-nilly keep adding as many elements as you can conceivably think of. I think you have to take a very thoughtful approach. So we did a little bit of follow-on research of our own, and we asked consumers, uh, given 100 points of value, how would they divide it up between the elements of value in our advice uh, value stack? And roughly speaking, uh, it's 50% for the functional or managing the money elements and 50% for the higher end of the pyramid. Um, So That brings to mind one key point, which is you can't forget to do the basics well. Um, You know, the basics are like oxygen. If you have it, you take it for granted. But if it's not there, it's the only thing that matters. So you have to get the investment side right. But you have to keep in mind that it is under more commoditization pressure. So getting it right as efficiently and as scalably as possible is the key to success there. And then what you focus your energy on is what elements of value at the higher end of the stack can you tap into. Now, one of the challenges there is that's intrinsically in many ways some of the things that people value, the soft stuff, if you will, the relationship-based conversations about their life, the family intergenerational discussion, and so on and so forth. Many advisors are not necessarily equipped to do that uh, as well as they are equipped to manage the money. And some of those activities are inherently more personalized and perhaps not as scalable as managing the money. So you have to be very thoughtful about what you engage in yourself. Um, How can you deliver it consistently and reliably? Where do you leverage outsourcing and centers of influence and really think of your business as an ecosystem of value where you sit at the hub of it, but you may need to build more relationships with other third parties to actually deliver on this value because you can't do it all yourself well. And then finally, and Eric and I were talking about this with you, Mark, before the podcast started, um, where are customers actually willing to pay you a price premium? Um, And you have to be thoughtful about how you put these things together because uh, you want a scalable, attractive business at the end of that, one that works consistently and reliably for all your customers. So episode one in the books. I had a blast doing this. Eric and Sanjeev, thank you so much for your insights and for your time. Fascinating information. And I look forward to digging deeper into the new advice value stack and hope that you all do too. We've got a real call to action here today. So join me next time on FinPoint as we further explore today's new approaches and thinking behind finding more opportunity and ways for you to grow your business. I'm Mark Squires. Thanks so much for listening. Net Promoter. NPS and Net Promoter Score are trademarks of Satmetrics Systems, Inc., Bain & Company, Incorporated, and Fred Reichelt. The client experience expressed in this podcast is no guarantee of future success and may not be representative of the experience of other Fidelity clients. The content provided herein is general in nature and is for informational purposes only. This information is not individualized and is not intended to serve as the primary or sole basis for your decisions as there may be other factors you should consider. Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions does not provide financial or investment advice. You should conduct your own due diligence and analysis based on your specific needs. Views expressed 
are through September 28, 2018, and do not necessarily represent the views of Fidelity. Views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions, and Fidelity disclaims any responsibility to update such views. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with Fidelity Investments. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions, registered trademark, provides clearing, custody, and other brokerage services through National Financial Services, LLC, or Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Members, NYSE, SIPC. 200 Seaport Boulevard, Z2B1, Boston, Massachusetts, 02210. Content from Fidelity Institutional Asset Management, FIM, is provided by Fidelity Investments Institutional Services Company, Incorporated. 500 Salem Street, Smithfield, Rhode Island, 02917. Copyright 2018, FMR, LLC. All rights reserved. 862-159.1.0.